the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. It keeps your workers warm. It keeps your heavy equipment running. It keeps your customers happy. Propane. Let us take the pain out of propane. We'll make sure your tanks are full so you don't have to. Skagit Farmers Supply provides safe, efficient delivery service for business, agriculture, and residential. Visit them today and see how they can keep you warm this winter at SkagitFarmers.com. At Western Solar, we believe that integrity and craftsmanship are foundational to everything that we do. It's who we are and why we back up that statement with something tangible so that you know we're invested in the quality of your installation. We guarantee for 25 years that if your equipment fails, we will replace it at no cost. We also guarantee that your solar panels will generate at least 92% of their rated capacity 25 years from the day they're installed. We can commit to these guarantees because we invest in our employees and we recognize the quality of their work. In fact, we're continuing to grow and looking to hire, train, and invest in new team members. We provide the most comprehensive warranty coverage in the area because integrity and craftsmanship guide our every decision. We strongly believe that when we invest in our employees, they invest in our customers, and the community wins. Stop by our office on Home Road in Bellingham to meet our team, and you'll see why that for almost two decades we've been installing clean energy, investing in our community, and loving what we do. Western Solar at westernsolarinc.com. KPUG is the sports leader, bringing you complete coverage of the Seahawks, Mariners, Huskies, and our high school athletes. We put you in the stands of the biggest games, including the Super Bowl, the World Series, March Madness, and state championships. Plus, KPUG features the best in sports analysis and entertainment, from Dan Patrick and Jim Rome to Mike Greenberg and our own Mark Skolton. If it's happening in sports, it's on. KPUG 1170, 97.9 FM, KPUG 1170.com. Recovering Salmon here in Wacom and Skagit County and in Washington State and beyond around the Pacific Northwest. We know that salmon populations continue to struggle, and it's a heartbreaking thing to see. Welcome back to The Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop with you here on KGMI. Glad you're with us. Well, you know, so if if this is The Farming Show, why are we talking about salmon? Well, I think it's become so clear to so many people in, in recent decades that, you know, what what's happening with farming um, and what's happening with salmon, what's happening with our watersheds, our streams, land use, all of these things, urban areas as well, tire dust, all of these things are connected. And there are issues even beyond our land use here, our streams here, what's happening out in the ocean, what's happening way far away as we understand the life cycle of, of salmon taking them on huge, long, incredible journeys through. There's all kinds of stuff that's happening to these populations as we see their numbers continue to, to dwindle. And, and, and our community continues to come together more and more around the idea of we need to recover these species. They're important on a variety of levels, um, one of which is food as well. And, and in the farming community, we know about food. And certainly our local tribal communities, it's about food. It's about culture, history, 
uh, spirituality even, um, and the, the commercial fishing community. It's about food and families and, and producing food and managing the land and water and our resources. We're recognizing how this is all connected. So this is so important. And you know, the farming community here locally has been more and more involved in, hey, let's, let's restore our streams, let's build buffers, let's um, build other habitat projects. What can we do with floodgates? You know, there's work that's happening and the more that can be done, but there's also a recognition that there's more to the story here. And this is, so this is something that we've talked about before here on the farming show. Um, this issue of seals and sea lions and other as they're technically called pinnipeds in, uh, and it's, I think it's, it's more often nearshore waters than an issue way out in, on the high seas. There are other issues on these populations there as well. But this issue of, of pinnipeds, and the term here is predation, them eating the salmon that we're trying to recover. What is the balance here? And, and, and what is this part of the story? Joining us right now is Daniel Schindler. He's a professor at the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. He's also uh, the chair of a study on this issue with the Washington State Academy of Sciences. Welcome to the program, uh, Professor Schindler, and, and thank you for being here. Talk about what you guys were looking into, and of course we want to get into what you have found so far in looking at this part of what can we do to recover salmon. Yeah, good morning, and uh, thanks for the invite. Uh, Dylan. Um, yeah, this uh, report we just uh, published was one that was requested by the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife um, to the Washington State Academy of Sciences to basically synthesize what we know with regards to the science of pinniped predation on salmon in Washington state waters. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, science done on this topic. There's a lot of anecdotal uh, observations from users of the salmon resource and people who care mm -hmm. about marine mammals. Mm -hmm. um, so we had like quite a ball of uh, of information and data to to synthesize as part of this report. Well, and also it's become a social and political talking point for some as well. Like, oh, just deal with the seals and that'll solve the problem. I think, you know, I'm going to acknowledge and I'm assuming that you would agree, you know, if we're talking about protecting salmon, protecting our aquatic resources, uh, environments, whatever, there is no one thing. <laughs> and and it, it frustrates me. I've said this many times on this program as well. It frustrates me when people try to present, okay, here's this one thing. And if we just do this one thing, it will solve all our problems. That's not true here. And I just want to acknowledge that from the get-go that what we're talking about here isn't the silver bullet. I, I, am I correct in saying that? Absolutely. There are no silver bullets with respect to salmon recovery in Washington. And uh, the reality is, you know, the pressures on salmon really are quite variable from place to place and year to year and even decade to decade. And, uh, you know, any issue with respect to pinnipeds as predators um, is part of this more complex story about the salmon ecosystem. So I guess a place to start with this, you, you were looking, again, asked by uh, WDFW to study this uh, via the Washington State Academy of Sciences, where you chaired this, this study, which technically for folks who want to look it up, it's the pinniped predation on salmonids in the Washington portions of the Salish Sea and Outer Coast. 
what did you find? I think there's even been a question of, is this idea of seals and sea lions and, and, and pinnipeds eating salmon, is this something that's actually making a dent? Is this a real problem? Some people say, again, say this is the whole problem. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, but certainly some have said, well, we're not even sure if this is really a factor because there's a lot of other things at play. What did you guys find in that realm? Yeah, so what we did was was really try to build a story and build the weight of evidence for answering this question about what impacts pinnipeds could be having on salmon recovery. And, you know, we need to start with what we know with very high certainty and a couple observations there. First, the uh, passing of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the 1970s has been spectacularly successful. Um, the number of harbor seals and California and stellar sea lions in the Salish Sea and on the outer coast has has really um, exploded in some respects. You know, it's gone up several fold during the last few um, decades, the last decade or so. It's uh, the numbers of these predators appears to be leveling off. Um, but the point is that there are more marine mammal predators out there now than there has been in most of the last century. And to, yeah, to further complicate that is the other thing we acknowledge and recognize is that uh, Indigenous people hunted these things. Um, and it's very possible that we're seeing abundances of pinnipeds now that may actually be higher than they were 100 or 200 years ago because um, they may have been hunted more heavily than they have, <clears throat> excuse me, have been this, uh, this last century. So that's part of the story that you can't discredit. There are more predators out there now than there have been in, in mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. um, the second piece of the story, which again has very little uncertainty associated with it, is these animals eat salmon. Um, whether it's a harbor seal or a sea lion, um, we know that they uh, eat salmon throughout their life cycle. Harbor seals, for instance, eat young salmon as they leave the estuaries as smolts. Um, seals and sea lions eat uh, salmon as they come back to spawn, particularly in river mouths and at pinch points in the Salish Sea that they migrate through and where they're particularly vulnerable, as well as out there in the, in the broader parts of the Salish Sea. So we know that salmon are victims from some pinnipeds. Um, you put those two things together, and what we also know with a lot of certainty is that the number of salmon eaten by these pinnipeds has increased dramatically over the last 40 years, and it's a really big number. Um, so the fact that it's a big number is something we can stand behind. Where we start to get on thin ice is to translate that number in terms of how many fish are eaten into an assessment of what the impact is on the salmon population. Um, and that's because of the complexities of the ecosystem that salmon and pinnipeds are part of. Um, so that's where we started yeah, skating on thinner ice yeah. in terms of our ability to make definitive conclusions about pinnipeds, pinnipeds preventing recovery of salmon. Is it kind of, maybe this is boiling it down too far, but is it a correlation versus causation question? It's definitely a correlation versus causation question because we know that as pinnipeds have built up, salmon recoveries have, have stayed flat or in some cases even declined for certain stocks and certain species. Um, the, the tricky part are dealing with the complexities of this salmon pinniped ecosystem 
because pinnipeds are not the only predator eating salmon. And pinnipeds also eat other predators of salmon. So then you start asking questions about, well, what if the pinnipeds weren't here? Would that mean that there would be more other predators of of salmon? Um, And that's where it's really difficult based on, or I would argue it's impossible based on existing data to come up with a definitive conclusion that pinnipeds are the primary reason that uh, salmon stocks are not recovered. And again, we're talking with Professor Daniel Schindler with the University of Washington. He uh, was chair of this study effort by the Washington State Academy of Sciences on pinniped predation, or uh, in, I guess, more layman's terms, um, harbor seals and sea lions, and how many salmon do they eat, and how what effect does that have on the recovery of particularly the endangered species of salmon that we're working so hard, you know, across our, our communities in our society here, at least in this region, to recover. Um, so where do you take it from there? I, I recognize that it's tough to, re- like you said, with existing data anyway, and I'm sure there's a huge need for more information on this complex system. But even with the data that you have, you guys drew some conclusions about some of the impacts that are actually occurring here and possibly some things that could be done. Yeah, so again, we, if we stick to things that we can say with confidence, um, you know, any effect of pinnipeds are probably amplified or expressed at, at high levels in, in these pinch points where uh, salmon have to migrate through this gauntlet of predators. Those are the most likely places that these types of effects are playing out. doesn't mean they're the only places. Um, but I, I guess one of our other important conclusions is that, um, you know, it'd be very easy to study this question to death yeah. um, by, by getting more behavioral observations of seals and sea lions, by studying more detailed, um, having more detailed analyses of their diets, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot we could do from science, but it's not clear that those types of studies would get us to the answer we're looking for or at least allow us to answer the question we're trying to, to answer here. Um, and what that's really probably going to take is to manipulate in an adaptive management framework um, the abundances of pinnipeds. Mm. And that is something that <clears throat> is the very tricky thing to do. Um, there are people who, of course, are very concerned about the welfare of pinnipeds. There are others who are concerned about the welfare and, uh, and the uh, abundance of salmon. Um, policymakers are going to have to navigate those conflicts and trade-offs. But really one of our key conclusions was that if we are serious about figuring out how important pinnipeds are to preventing salmon recovery, we probably are going to have to alter the abundance of pinnipeds. Mm. Some of this is going on in the Columbia River already where problem individuals are being removed from places, particularly below some of the dams, where um, we know things like sea lions are really <laughs> taking out a yeah. lot of uh, migrating salmon. So I understand like the, those efforts have seen a little bit of initial success. Of course, it remains to be seen what the long-term impact is, but I've heard yeah, some positive key. things. That's key. I mean, um, some indications are that it's working, but 
it is going to take some sustained management effort to really demonstrate conclusively that experiments or management approaches such as that actually work. So we have to be in this for the long haul. We have to be willing to step up and take some risks if we really want to figure this this problem out. What would that look like, you know, reducing or managing the population of these pinnipeds? I I think the the interesting thing, just to step back to the 30,000-foot view, you know, with the Marine Mammal Predation Act, or Protection Act, I should say, um, in the 70s, put basically an entire ban on doing anything as far as harvest of those animals or, or anything else, you know, if, if some, that already, you know, to me says, okay, there could be a lack of balance there when other things, you know, of arguably similar importance or, you know, in different parts of the food chain or the, you know, predator uh, chain, whatever the term for it might be, you know, all, all of a sudden they own this special, very protected spot where other things may not. That's how you could see potentially things getting out of whack. Could, you know, a, a return of, of um, native, you know, uh, aboriginal type harvests be part of this or or is there something where more technology is involved or even a commercial role for for addressing some of the what does that actually look like to manage this population yeah so our report didn't get too deep into those types of details um, those details would have to be worked out um, they should include both scientific analyses and perspectives about, for instance, how many animals would have to be removed, or if other technologies were used, how, you know, in some cases there are approaches that try to scare animals away or distract them from places where they eat a lot of salmon. Some of those might work. Um, So there is a bunch of options that for things that could be done. Um, Our report didn't get too deep into trying to figure out what those specific options may actually look like in a practical sense. Um, and that's something that would have to ta- be taken seriously before, you know, managers start start doing things. It should be informed by science. It should be informed by stakeholder yeah. uh, perspectives and, and concerns. Um, but there's distinct risks in doing nothing. Um, mm. You know, salmon are not showing any signs of recovery. As you pointed out at the beginning of the show, they are suffering from a whole bunch of different reasons, from climate change to uh, degraded habitat to predation by things like seals and, and sea lions. So it's it's a multifaceted problem. It's not going to be easy to, to deal with, but the reality is we have to do the science and the management at the right scales to figure this one out. I, I think something that you're saying there is somewhat echoing things that we've been talking about here in the Nooksack Basin and, and some of the other water management things, uh, habitat work, a lot of other things that need to be done here um, that you mentioned earlier, you know, this could be studied to death, but that shouldn't be done Um I would think there's a time element to that, too. We don't have time to study this to death. The endangered, critically endangered, in some cases, salmon runs need help now uh, before years and decades of studies uh, can play out. Absolutely. I mean, the one reality is salmon, and luckily for us, are very resilient species. And 
they're on the ropes, but they're only still around because they can handle a lot of pressure from humans. Um, so we do have some time, but you're right. We can't wait around forever and pretend this problem will go away on its own. Um, we really need to start thinking carefully about how to coordinate both the science and the management yeah. on issues like rehabilitating habitat, like possibly managing predators, like how we um, use hatcheries to supplement. Um, all of those things need yeah. to be coordinated. They need to be thought of at the right spatial scales, yeah. both for local stocks, but also in the broader context of the ecosystem. And we have to do it for the long term. We can't play around with one year here doing strategy X and another year doing strategy Y. Um, we need to be in it for the long term. And that's how increasingly the farming community feels too. And, and more and more people are saying, let's look at all of the above. Let's not just seize on one thing or the other. This needs to be multifaceted. We need to be pursuing all potential options. We need to hurry it up and get things going because we don't have unlimited time. And I appreciate what you're saying about risk management, too. Is there a risk to doing something? Yes. Is there a risk to not doing something? Yes. So let's weigh those out and, and find the better, you know, the best course of action rather than simply dismissing things out of hand, which seems to happen all too often with, with discussions that end up being really too siloed on one issue or another. Yeah, I agree entirely. Um, we need to be explicit about expressing these risks, <clears throat> both scientifically and socially, and um, we need to, to grapple with how we're going to navigate through those various risks because there isn't a single factor that's the problem here. And just a couple of seconds remaining again, uh, Daniel Schindler, uh, a professor with the University of Washington's uh, School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. Uh, he's been researching things with salmon and other aquatic issues up and down uh, the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest for many, many years. Uh, very accomplished in that realm, and he chaired this study, Pinniped Predation of Salmonids in the Washington Portions of the Salish Sea and Outer Coast at the request of WDFW for the Washington State Academy of Sciences. Uh, we appreciate your time. Um, real quick, just in, in a few seconds before we run, you know, what the, the, the things that you guys are saying in this study and, and the whole team of you that work together, the conclusions that you reached, particularly about potentially needing to manage and eliminate pinnipeds to some degree, you know, to, to harvest animals or whatever shape that might take, is not always a popular opinion. How, how has the reaction been, just in a few words? Uh, to be perfectly honest, we haven't really had much <laughs> reaction so far. Um, you know, we recognized when we wrote this report and, and published it that it may strike a chord in a positive way with some people and a distinctly negative chord with others. And, you know, our goal was not to try to satisfy anyone or to piss anyone off. Our <laughs> goal was to synthesize what we know, what does the science tell us, and it's really up to other people, namely managers and policymakers, to decide what to do with this. You know, that's not the not the job of the scientists. The job of the scientists is to really say, what do we know and how can we improve what we know? And that's where we ended it. And, yeah, as I said, it's not going to sit well with everyone. And uh, 
that's something we need to grapple with as a society and as a set of communities is how do we move forward with with information like this yep that's how science should be it's not always comfortable uh and it's not a design to be professor daniel schindler uh the chair of this study and a professor at, at uw thank you for being here this morning yeah thanks for your interest dylan Now you can mow, dig, grade, haul, and more with the perfect solution for your property, a Branson tractor. Save your back and your wallet with one of our compact but powerful tractors here at Farmers Equipment Company. Stop by and choose from our full line of Bransons to take on your toughest tasks. With tractors from 19 to 55 horsepower, we have a Branson compact or utility tractor that is perfect for you. Want to use a rotary cutter to tame that tall brush on your property? You can do that. What about snagging a scoop from that pile of gravel to maintain your driveway free of potholes? You can do that too. Branson's six-year warranty along with our factory-trained technicians will make sure your new tractor is always running great. Get the tractor you want and the peace of mind you need at Farmers Equipment Company. To learn more, visit us online at FarmersEquip.com or stop by our locations in Linden or Burlington today. Farmers Equipment Company, serving the Pacific Northwest for over 86 years. Are you on Medicare or individual health insurance and wondering if you are on the right plan for your family? This is Marcia Neal with Vibrant USA. We understand the TV advertising and the mail you have been receiving may create more questions than answers. Although deadlines are coming, you may still have time to make a change. So call Vibrant USA at 866-733-5111. Our agents can review your plan options, answer your questions, and put your mind at ease. Hi, this is Joe Tian from KGMI. We know you hear local businesses advertise with us every day, but did you know that when you do your holiday shopping online or in-store with a local business, nearly 70% of every dollar you spend stays right here in our community. That's better than a lump of coal any day. Thanks for letting us be part of your holiday. We'll see you at a local business soon. A holiday reminder to shop local from Cascade Radio Group and KGMI. We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city. But sometimes, things happen to snarl everything up. Depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI Traffic Alerts. We'll tell you where the trouble spots are. And if you see problems on the road, give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. Oh, we finally made it to winter time. This is about the time of the year where I mentioned how everybody's kind of breathing a sigh of relief. Except for those poor dairy guys. I mean, at least they aren't dealing with crops. But they still have animals to milk and animals to feed year-round. But, uh, you know, the crop guys, the berry guys, you name it, they're, 
having a chance here to look back at how did the season go? What are we going to do next year? Kind of some weird moments in the past season for crops and for weather and for farming here in the Pacific Northwest um, and Whatcom County in particular. Uh, This is The Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. Glad you're here uh, with me on your Saturday morning. You know what? This fall in particular kind of left things hanging in some ways. You know, potato digging got weird because of that. Um, everybody was enjoying the warm temperatures until it just went right from summer to, to winter, basically, didn't it? Joining me right now with CHS Northwest, uh, an agronomist there and a longtime buddy of mine, classmate of mine, played high school uh, football with him. Uh, Joe Vanderpoel, welcome to the program, Joe. Um, it was kind of a, a weird end to the season, right? I don't know I how you work with probably potato guys, probably some dairy guys with corn and grass and crops, and, and, and then berry folks as well, which I know is quite a bit of your background in the farming world. But let's start with the potatoes and then kind of work backward they actually had to put water on to get their spuds out of the ground. Usually they're dealing with too much mud and too much water. It was the opposite this year. What, what did you hear from guys out there? Yeah, Dylan, thanks for having me. Um, it was. It was really dry, and we could have. We really needed some rain to get ground softened up and to knock some dust down, and everybody that tried to do a fall harvest really struggled with that on one hand. But on the other hand, we really needed the, the warm weather to get things to finish. It's just we kind of ran out of days for spuds, so they yeah. got killed off, and it didn't really affect them well, as that, far and, as and, uh, Yeah, and that goes back, I mean, the days to finish them off that you mentioned, that goes back to how things got started in the spring, which was bizarre too, right? You know, the whole summer and in, into the fall, I was saying, it was almost like everything was delayed by almost a month, right? Yeah, and that extended digging period, I mean, it was obviously better than trying to mud them out, but they weren't able to. You know, they still had to kill them in order to get them out, and uh, we just got such a late start on them. It was, it really made for a tough potato year. Now, with potatoes, you know, I'm a little more familiar with corn because I planted corn for, um, well, it wasn't CHS Northwest then, but Whatcom Family, or Whatcom Farmers uh, Co-op back in the day. Um, Days to maturity, you know, I was used to more of that, you know, the different numbers and seed types, hybrids, yada, yada. But for potatoes, what kind of days from planting to maturity are, are they talking about with those? What are the ranges there? Because they weren't really you know, able it, to get everything it, planted really until just, like May. End of May. Yeah, it's really dependent upon variety. And yeah. um, some varieties plant better in different soils. So you, you can't necessarily... Uh, to plant, you can't necessarily plant around it. You just have to go when the dirt's ready to go for where you're at. And uh, unfortunately, some of them just didn't have enough day length, and we didn't get the yield because of it. And watching things in the spring, it was like the, the last field, it was so wet, and it rained so late in into the season. And then you can't the, the last fields that you can get to to plant are the wettest ones and so you know i was nervous a lot of people were nervous well those are going to be the hardest those need the most time they're going to mature the latest into the fall and they're going to be the ones that get too wet to harvest most quickly well that didn't end up being really a problem at all did anybody have, i mean i'm assuming everybody had basically all of their spuds out of the ground before the rain hit 
Yeah, the, the, getting them out of the ground wasn't a problem. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. It was a problem because yeah. it was too dry to dig. But it, it wasn't because it got too wet. But another th- factor there was when it did finally dry up enough, it was just there was no moisture. You know, yeah. you didn't get any rain after that. And yeah, it was unfortunately just a tough year. And watering ahead of digging to actually be able to have soil moisture there, you know, I'm not too much of a potato expert. And by the way, I should mention for for people who don't know a ton about uh, Whatcom County agriculture, all the potatoes grown commercially here are for seed. This is a seed potato protected uh, growing region for certified seed potatoes, very similar to commercial potatoes for people to eat. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, but still it's for seed, not for eating. It, the The issue there, from what I understand, and again, I'm not a huge expert, but you just got to soften the clods of dirt because when dirt dries out, you get all these clods. The diggers dig them up just like potatoes then, and you've got to sort through potatoes and, and clods of dirt, and somebody has to choose which is which. Yeah, and trying to get dirt to flow through the machines. and Yeah. Yep. All right, again, Joe Vanderpaul, agronomist with uh, CHS Northwest, is with us on the Farming Show right now, uh, taking a look back at uh, 2022 and kind of the weird year that it was. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, we talked about potatoes and getting them out of the ground at the end of the, the season. Back to the beginning, it was so wet. It was really a big question mark for a while, like what? how are these berry crops going to do um, particularly, of course, red raspberries and blueberries, which are our big berry crops here locally. How did things actually end up turning out for those guys? You know, there was quite a bit of root rot that came into some raspberry fields, which was expected. Um, I think the raspberry crop would have been better, but we had some heat damage again this year, and it wasn't it wasn't to the extent of last year. Yeah, um, but I think. Uh, a lot of guys were hoping for quite a bit more tonnage than we got, but the market was still pretty strong, which did help a little bit in the raspberries. Yeah, so they, I mean, we did have some hot, we didn't have a heat dome like we had in 2021, which, I mean, for people who had a lot of fruit still on the bush at that point, uh, which was a lot of the crop, uh, a lot of that shriveled away. It was really hard on the blueberries too, and we can get into how the blueberries did this year as well. But you're saying that even some of the heat that we had this year, um what shriveled some berries up or, or what did yeah, it really you know do that he came kind of right about the wrong time for raspberries because they were in the uh depending a little bit on variety again but a lot of varieties were in the peak of production and the plants just can't keep up with that type of fruit load and that type of heat so a lot of a lot of fruit got smaller we had some fruit drying out and uh on struggling some of the struggling fields with struggling root issues to begin with it was especially right. apparent but yeah, and like I said, the yield wasn't as bad as the year before, but I think everybody was just hoping this was going to be that year we could really hit it, and it didn't quite end up that way. Yeah. Anybody throw numbers around, like percentages, roughly what they think maybe they were down from what they could have been? You know, that that's a number that's all over the board because people <laughs> yeah. get different yields. Uh, so. And and what do you have to compare against? I mean, there's no, no control to say what you would have gotten – um, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. With all that rain, wet dirt, raspberries don't like that. That's why they grow well in well-drained soil. They grow poorly uh, in heavier soils. Everything was heavy soil with all the rain we had coming down. Like you said, root rot was a problem. Well, if you have disease 
in your roots, that the root system of the plant is weak, then yeah, when things do turn around, you have all this fruit then sizing up on the bush. It needs to be pulling up a lot of water uh, to support all this. It, if you don't have the root system there, the whole plant just kind of pukes out and, and more heat actually makes that happen faster. So I, I didn't put those two together, but yeah, rain and then heat. It's not like it cancels it out. It can actually make it worse. How about the the blueberries? There have been some talk that there would be, be some holdover damage actually from the heat damage the year before with the heat dome. Yeah, and it didn't seem to be that bad. Um, one thing about these permanent crops, it makes it really difficult for guys to get through and get work done when we have all this wet ground and they end up trying to, this was kind of finishing the raspberries, but also yeah. for blueberries. You end up pushing your tractors through and then you start making holes in your fields. It was just a real struggle this wet spring for us for for uh, all the crops that we grow up here yeah and that was you probably can't, you can't pump around those holes you know the wet spots in your field you're, you're forced to go through them yep yeah when you have a row crop like that with permanent trellis in place it's not like you have a choice uh to go around it um and unfortunately yeah. i did see a lot of that you know chained up tractors just to get rigs through um, and yeah, I'm sure a lot for of these you guys had to work really hard. I, I'm sure for you guys too, that messed things up, you know, even timing as far as, you know, getting various applications of things on, there tends to be a bit of a pattern. I remember from, from working at that, you know, at the co-op myself, it was kind of like, okay, this is the busy time. This is the first application of fertilizer. Or this is the first, th- everything was pushed back and kind of squeezed into weird places. It was probably kind of chaotic for you guys. I would imagine on the back end. Yeah, I think everybody in agriculture, they just had to, uh, you know, it's kind of a hurry up and wait year. You know, there's only so much you can do. But, uh, yeah, I think it's a real good one to have behind us. Yeah, we survived it, I guess, at least. Again, Joe Vanderpaul is with us here on The Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop here with you on your Saturday morning on KGMI. Um, what about the what about the dairy folks, the, the corn and, and gra- you know, if, if I was saying this spring, this is a grass-growing spring. So people had some outstanding grass crops. If there was anything that liked that soggy weather, it was the grass. Yeah, and it was, if you guys could get in on some early new seedings, they did awesome. Uh, some of our later new seedings really struggled because it's, it's really tough to keep enough moisture in a new grass field uh, in late June, early July. But yeah. for rotation, sometimes we just had to go for it and uh, – those ones struggled, but the early ones did really good. And there were some really big, heavy cuttings on the first couple of cuttings. And then uh, when the rain stopped, some of the grass petered out. But, yeah, it was uh, interesting to get through. Yeah, and, and as far as corn goes, too, I mean, the, I was watching that play out. And, again, with my background doing that, I'm feeling so bad for these guys trying to figure out when they could plant. Their fields are underwater. They're just out there trying to work them to get them dry enough to quick plant before the next rainstorm would come if they could sneak it in. Of course, then you worry about, well, you, you get a bunch of seed in the ground and you get a whole bunch more rain. You could just flood out what you just seeded and have to do it all over again. Um, and it, everything started so late. It was like, man, are we even going to get a corn crop at all? You know, knee high by the 4th of July. Forget about it. It was like knee high by the 4th of August. It looked like it was going to be terrible. Um, how did it turn out? I mean, corn is all about the, the days to maturity and those heat units that it needs, but they kind of got lucky at the end of the season, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, obviously we could have a little moisture in September would have been nice to help finish, but, uh, we were really fortunate that we could get as much heat as we could in the fall because otherwise we were looking at some really, really light crops and, um, 
ended up being okay. Some guys did better than others, but uh, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, if yeah. we would have had a September like uh, the year before where it started raining and didn't stop, yeah. I, we would have been a real struggle. So that, that, that drive fall did really help finish some corn, and uh, it really made it, you know, you talk to people and they said, well, this, I think this might be the first year we ever uh, got through corn season without rain coming on our bunker. <laughs> It was uh, people weren't getting stuck, but it was a challenge for him to harvest and all that dust. I don't know if you watched any anybody chopping, oh, but yeah. there, uh, it was a dust bowl out there. And, yeah, but they got through it. Yeah, what do you do? I mean, it's frustrating. You see all that dust blowing around. Nobody wants that, but there's a crop no. there that's got to come off. I mean, what, what else can you do? Yeah, and I think most people made the best of it and got through it. And, uh, you know, there's never going to be that perfect year, but this one was definitely a challenge from start to finish. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so looking forward with the way things ended kind of weird in the fall, what are you telling guys? What are people kind of scheming out there for next year? You know, because the fall time is setting things up for the next year, especially with cover crops and soil health. Um, you know, it's too late now, but earlier manure application, things like that. That was really tough with all the dry. A lot of fields didn't really get a cover crop established, and some fields are kind of looking rough now going into the winter with, with you know, soil structure and soil health. Yeah, unfortunately, there just wasn't a fall to get a lot of cover crops established. You know, people, people tried, but a lot of it just by the time we had enough moisture to get a cover crop, they would go in, and then the, the it got so cold so quick. So, yeah. Um, I think, though, moving forward, a lot of guys probably trying to keep in perspective that this was an anomaly and we don't have to worry about this every year. Um, yeah, let's hope As not. far as the, the soil structure goes, there's there's not a lot we can change at this point. Um, and most of our ground around here is pretty healthy without people take care of it. So we should be okay coming into next spring. Yeah, as long as... There'll be not... a little bit of an issue with some water standing in spots that yep. we normally wouldn't have. But... Uh, yeah, it should. Hopefully, we get a nice spring and and we can get things going again. Yeah, I, I've seen quite a bit of that, including uh, in the fields that were once my dad's berry fields, and you know they did spuds in there this year, and and where was not the moisture to get any sort of cover crop established before the days got too short and the rain and the cold showed up. Now that field doesn't want to drain at all um, with all that powder that that got left on the top but but what do you do short of you know try to get a lot of you know uh, i guess uh carbon content uh humus uh get some get some uh, soil structure going again with some manure in the in the spring but until then you're kind of stuck right yeah and you know in the spring that they will eventually drain down and people will get through and bring that soil back to life get it aerated again and uh It'll be ready. Yeah. Uh, what What uh, are you guys looking forward to? Anything new on the horizon as the, uh, you know, the 23 season will be here quicker than we know it? Yeah. Um, boy, I, I guess I, I can't think of anything real new on the horizon that we got to look forward to. Uh, I guess hopefully we're going to just look forward to a little bit more of a break into it spring easy. Yeah. <laughs> a little easier. You know what I mean? That's, I guess, what. What we're really hoping for is that we get a little better break in the weather early. Yeah, and the climate people are saying um, late this winter things are going to be shifting over to an El Nino, which 
as we've been seeing this El Nino, La Nina stuff only tells you so much about what the weather is actually going to do. Um, but typically they say El Nino is warmer and drier here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, that could potentially be a good thing as long as we have the snowpack and the, and the aquifer recharge and all the water that we need going into the season uh, to get us through. So, um, yeah, uh, what, else, what else do you do other than buckle up and say, let's, let's try this again? How, how are growers feeling out there? They, they feel like they're really struggling right now, you know, between, and we've been talking about the crops and the weather and all that, but they've got market forces. They've got a lot of things. You, you work one-on-one with a lot of these folks around the county. What's, what's the general mood? I, I know it's been, been rough out there. Yeah, it's been tough. I mean, markets, for what it's worth, are, are fairly strong. Blueberry market's a little bit soft, obviously, but uh, yeah. it's it's it was a tough year between uh, fuel prices and prices of fertilizer and labor prices. It's all gone up so much. So yeah, um, the markets have to come up in order to keep moving forward. And um, yeah, hopefully we can get some good crops back up next <laughs> year. And I've heard hopefully from- some hopefully some of the fuel and fertilizer costs can come down a little bit and uh yeah i think we're unfortunately stuck with the labor costs yeah what is the scoop on fertilizer prices i know they were just skyrocketing with everything that was going on with you know oil and ukraine and all this stuff i mean we were obviously seeing it at the pump but it was affecting fertilizer too is is you said you're hoping those come is there any indication those are coming down you know we're, we're hoping that's that's starting to soften a little bit so well, we'll take anything we can get at this point. I know. I think there was two ninety nine uh, at the gas pump the other day, and I thought, okay, well, maybe there is a little light at the end of the tunnel because I was sick of paying five bucks a gallon earlier this year. That was painful, and and that's very much tied to things like commercial fertilizer, as well. Uh, again, just at the mercy of the markets. I know some dairy folks that I talked to say, okay, yeah, markets are up. And you, you just said this too, Joe, you know, markets may be up, but they were saying, well, my costs are even that much higher. So I'm actually making less money, uh, even with, you know, some of the highest milk prices they had seen in a long time. I don't know if that applies. You know, I know br- blueberry prices, you said, are a bit soft, but they've been okay. Raspberry prices are still up, but input costs are still up. That's the other side of the equation that most people don't think about. Um, you can have high prices and it can still be a, a rough year uh, with everything else going on with the inflation that we're seeing. So hopefully everybody makes it again. Thank you, Joe uh, Vanderpaul, agronomist with CHS Northwest for checking in with us this morning and uh, doing what you do out there. We, we appreciate your time this morning. All right. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Appreciate it.